I'll give them a little bit, just a few minutes to do that, to take the kids upstairs and make their way back. In the meantime, if you have your Bibles with you, would you please open them to the Gospel of Luke? Uh, I'm going to read the uh, passage for today. It's found in chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. Um, give you a little bit of a preamble just to give them time as well as they're, they're taking the children upstairs and coming back, especially for those of you who are visiting here. We are a, a Bible believing in a Bible teaching church, and we go through books of the Bible on a regular basis. Uh, that's how we, we do it here at the Rock Church. And I, I was interested, uh, last night I was preparing my notes and just editing them a little bit and trying to bring them down from an hour and a half to something a little bit more tenable for all of you who are here today. Kidding, okay, seriously. Um, and I saw a post by uh, a pastor uh, who's a good friend and uh, uh, whose church is uh, very, very large and growing in the... Uh, Surrey, White Rock, and Langley area called The Village. And, and he was posting something, essentially, you know, they're, all, they're almost as old as we are as a church, not quite 10 years, but getting there. And it was to this point that people told him, as I was told many years ago, that, you know, in our day and age, young people today, they're just not going to sit, uh, sit there uh, for 45 minutes listening to someone talk and go through books of the Bible verse by verse. Like, that's passe. It's just not going to work. And I, I loved it from the perspective of Mark, who is a pretty dynamic preacher, essentially said, oh, really? <laughs> oh, really? And so it's an encouraging thing uh, I think we need to understand is, is that the reason why we're doing it is so that we can learn the Word of God together as family. But also I remind people that that's exactly how it happened in the New Testament, when the church actually exploded, right, and, and went from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth is the letters were distributed to the church and they devoured those letters for months. Because that was almost all they had, were these letters from Paul and from Peter and James and, and the other New Testament writers. Sure, they had the Old Testament too and, and their, their pastors and teachers in those churches spoke from those things, but it was from those books. And so it's an encouraging thing. And I would encourage you that uh, I know sometimes we can go through these books and through these passages and it's like, well, I don't know if there's anything in this for me today. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. There's always something here for us. So read with me. I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to pray one more time, and we're going to dive in to a very simple story here today, which is very profound. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Luke records, One day when he went to dine, Jesus, at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Let's pray. Father, once again, we come to you, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. Um, Holy Spirit, we ask you today, um, Lord Jesus, uh, we ask you today. You were there. This is your story. These events are true. And the things that you said are profound. And so we pray today that we, we could be literally transported into that time and space. And we could hear from you directly, learn from you directly, 
and have our hearts changed directly by you. And I pray these things in your worthy name. Amen. So now, though, for some of you who have been part of the Rock Church since we began this almost a year and a half ago, this, this gospel, and we have taken a few breaks for various other series, mini-series, which is, which is good. Uh, some of you might be saying, well, come on, wait a second. Is this not a repeat? <laughs> have we not been here before? I mean, Luke, seriously, like another meal with Jesus? Like, sounds like, sounds kind of repetitive. And I remember as I was looking at this and thinking about this a few years ago, uh, actually 12 years ago, 2007, I was with a number of other church planters, and we were in Seattle, Washington at an Acts 29 boot camp for church planters. Uh, and uh, there were two speakers on stage, um, two, two men that I met for the first time and heard from, and I was really, really taken by them. One of them was a man from England whose name is Tim Chester, and the other was a dear brother who's a good friend, uh, uh, Jeff Vanderstelt. Uh, who planted Soma in Tacoma, Washington, and uh, is now pastor of Doxa in Seattle, in Bellevue, Washington. And they were on stage, and they were, they were basically unpacking and talking about Tim Chester's book that he had written. And the book is called, it's a great book, you should get it, it's called A Meal with Jesus, Discovering Grace, Community, and Mission Around a Table. And, and I remember listening to these two guys, and it was clear that Jeff was really enamored with Tim because Tim was basically unpacking this whole thing that we actually live out here at the Rock Church called missional community groups. A little different than life groups and care groups, huddle and cuddle groups, as I like to refer to them. Uh, as, and, and it was amazing, the story they were unpacking. And it, it's beautiful that in his book, he actually, in his introduction, uh, Tim says that there are three ways in the New Testament that the New Testament completes this sentence. The Son of Man came. And I'm going to put them on screen for you. In each one of the ways that the New Testament unpacks this, these are the actual words of Jesus. So Jesus is himself saying, I came, the Son of Man came. Look first from Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It says this, Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The second is found in Luke, and we'll get to that in a, probably a few more months in chapter 19. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Thirdly, and we've already seen this in Luke chapter 7, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Remember that one? And, and then he went on to say, and these Pharisees, these people call him therefore a glutton and a drunkard. Hmm of which he was neither, of course. But these are the way Jesus reveals himself. Actually, Luke's gospel, and he unpacks that in his book, is fantastic because in Luke's gospel, it's, it's full of stories of Jesus eating meals with people. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners in the home of Levi, right? Matthew. After Matthew was called by Jesus to follow him and he begins to believe and follow Jesus, he says to all of his sinner Tax collector friends, hey, come for dinner with this guy who I just met, who called me to follow him. His name is Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. That didn't go well, did it? Well, it did, but not for the Pharisees. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. It's a meal, big meal, awesome meal. In Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Mary and Martha. Another amazing, amazing meal and teaching moment. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. This is how you win friends and influence people, right? Not really. 
But that's what he did in the home of a Pharisee. And then today we see again, he's dining at the house of a ruling Pharisee on the Sabbath. Verse, chapter 19, he invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus. That's where we just read one of those passages where he said, the son of man, and he said that to Zacchaeus, has come to seek and save the lost of which you are one. Welcome into the kingdom, Zacchaeus. Luke 22, we have an account of the Last Supper, another meal. And finally, in Luke 24, the risen Jesus has a meal with the two who are on the road to Emmaus, and he reveals himself in the breaking of bread at that meal with them. I mean, I, I remember reading at one point someone saying that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. It's a big deal. Jesus came eating and drinking with people. It's a very interesting idea and concept that he puts forward. In fact, the way uh, Tim explains it in his, his book is this. The first two statements that we read are statements of purpose. This is why I came. I came to accomplish these things, which are to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and save the lost. The last, the third statement, is a statement of method. It's the model. It's the how-to, right? How, how did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. He came to have relationship face-to-face. -face. It's a beautiful picture. If you think about it, you think about us as humans, we're, we're similar to animals in this sense, aren't we? The animal kingdom, we're similar in the sense we, we need food. The way God designed us, he, he made us so that we need to eat two, three times a day. We need to have food for nourishment to survive. So do the animals, but there's a difference. There's a big difference between us and the animal kingdom, isn't there? And it's, of course, the result of the Imago Dei, the image of God that's resident in us. And the reason why God actually created meals for you and I is because we're supposed to do it together. Have meals together, to eat together, face to face, to have conversation with one another face to face. And so if that is true, and I suggest to you it is true, and we will learn that lesson from this passage today, or part of that. One other thing is also true. As humans, not only do we need food for nourishment and in community and in family together, but we need one other thing desperately. You realize that in every 24 hours, what is that other thing that we need? Rest. We need rest. That's what our passage is about today. I want to show you it three ways. Your sermon title for today is The Sabbath Rules. I'd like to suggest you take that as a double entendre, right? The Sabbath rules and regulations and the Sabbath rules, right? Hope to see that in three ways from this text today. Number one, the setup. Number two, the tests, plural. Important to have some diction here. Uh, and lastly, the rest. Number one, the setup. I'll put the verses on screen for you. One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. So one Sabbath. Again, we're talking about a Sabbath day. Interesting. We've been here before, haven't we, in relation to that as well. Jesus and the Sabbath have an interesting relationship, especially in the minds of these Pharisees, right? It seems to be on the Sabbath where they're like, what is he doing? He, what is he doing on the Sabbath? They seem to be catching him doing things that they don't approve of. 
The Sabbath was the highlight, the one highlight of the Jewish life and the religious practice that Pharisees turned into an ultimate thing, into an idol, quite frankly. And therefore, it was a very big deal to them, these Pharisees. Sadly, they missed the fact, they missed the fact that it was an even bigger deal to Jesus. They missed that fact. And that was because in their minds, he was repeatedly, repeatedly disrespecting the Sabbath. And therefore, as far as they were concerned, he was a Sabbath breaker, a law breaker. And that's what they, they were setting him up to convict him of on this day. On many occasions, they'd seen Jesus behaving very oddly on the Sabbath. As in today's passage, they'd seen him before on the Sabbath heal, miraculously heal someone. That's a no-no. You can't do that, they said. But they'd also seen him and, and his disciples plucking the grain, heads of grain, remember that? And, and eating it on the Sabbath. <laughs> well, he turned that into an object lesson that, again, they didn't get, but they saw him doing that. So it appeared to the religious Pharisees, it appeared to them that he was being disrespectful. And that was their job, quite frankly, to cause the people of Israel, cause believers to respect the law of God. So you see these Pharisees had taken the Old Testament commandment by God that you will find in Exodus and Deuteronomy in the Ten Commandments, which simply said this. I want to put it on screen for you to review it. It simply said these things. In Exodus 20, we read this. This is the command of the Lord, one of the Ten Commandments, right? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. So, so notice, if, if you look at the text that we just looked at, there, there is just one thing that we are told not to do on the Sabbath. Ski, right? Well, we'll get to that. Now, what is it? Just one thing. Work. Just don't work. I mean, imagine being... This is Exodus, right, where it's coming from. Imagine be the people of Israel who were in captivity, in slavery, and had to work seven days a week consistently, 20, 24 hours a day in some cases, all year for years, and God comes along and says, by the way, I want you to take a vacation every six days for a whole day. I mean, at first, don't you think they would have been like, whoa, this is awesome. This is a great God. This is a great king. That's what you would think, Right? That's what you might think. So this is interesting, though, what we see here going on. The Pharisees, what they had done, though, is this. The Pharisees had taken the law of God, the fourth commandment, and instead of appreciating the spirit of the commandment, they decided to do what all religious people do, right? And even to this day, right? They looked at the law and said, well, you know what? Let's define work, <laughs> Let's, let's have a little water cooler conversation, a little theology class, and let's define this thing called work. Let's really nail this down. It's really how they went about it. And so you see, if the objective is to earn your salvation, 
to be approved by God by what you do, well then let's make sure we show him and everyone else how seriously we're taking his commandments, right? See, their idea was that they thought that if they, if they blew it, if they, didn't, if they did any kind of work on the Sabbath day, then God would punish them. And if not punish them, certainly not bless them. And so they, they turned this into something that resulted, eventually they came up with what became known as the traditions of the elders, additional rules and regulations, which they put on the people and on themselves, but they, of course, were full-time in this, so it wasn't such a big deal for them to be able to put on their big hats and their cloaks and clang the offering jar and prove to everybody else that they were, they were doing what was supposed to be done on the Sabbath day and nothing else, and they turned that day, quite frankly, into something that nobody looked forward to. Ever been in a church like that? <laughs> right? Obligation? Yeah. Now, on this one Sabbath day then, a day when they should be truly resting in who God is and what He has done. Enjoying the blessing of a wonderful meal together. How richly blessed they are to have this food that they can eat together with family, including sojourners, they decided to work on trapping Jesus. Yes, to discredit him so that they could be rid of him, his teachings and his influence over the people once and for all. So now I want you to look at this picture. This is a luncheon. This is a luncheon that's happening after synagogue. And it's, it's in the home of a rather uh, uh, powerful and, and frankly wealthy man in that community in that day. And Luke tells us, look at this, they're watching him. So there could be like 20 to 30 men at this table, and they're, all their eyes are on Jesus. And then Luke uses the words, and behold, which is intentional. It's a great use of language because behold literally from the Greek means look. So, so he's speaking to you and to me the hearer of the word, and he's saying, so they're looking at Jesus. Now, I want you, listen, look at what's going on here in this story. So first we have the Pharisees, all of them looking uh, at the table, looking at Jesus, and then look, Jesus says, now look at this, and what is this? Well, right in front of Jesus, right across the table from Jesus, right, is a man with dropsy. So the question has to be, where do you think they wanted Jesus to look? <laughs> he's, right there, he's right there. Like, the table's not that wide. It's a long table, right? And they're, they're reclined at table. And the, this man is right across from Jesus. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with dropsy, uh, it is uh, referred to in our day medically as edema, which is, uh, generally speaking, um, an abnormal swelling in the body uh, caused by water retention and usually the result of organ failure, especially heart, liver, or kidneys, there you have your medicinal uh, approach to this today. Uh, so this man, listen, at the end of the day, the, the truth is this man would have looked really unhealthy. You know, th th this was not necessarily going to make you want to eat. This man would, look, would have looked really sick right across from Jesus. It's so sad, really it is, I feel. They have the Son of the living God, the Messiah, in their presence at a meal.
And, and although normally I think it would be a really good thing to be looking at Jesus, we're all encouraged to look at Jesus, look at his life, his death, burial, and resurrection, look to Jesus, right? And normally that would be a good thing. But in this case, isn't it sad? They're, they're looking at him so that they can find one last piece of evidence, just one more time that he would be a Sabbath breaker and they could go, great. Now we can take him to Herod and have him put away for being this terrible person. So let me ask you this question. Obviously, from this story, all of the Pharisees, right? All of the Pharisees knew what was going on, right? All of them knew that this was a setup. It was pre-planned. It was premeditated. They found this guy, which is really crazy because according to the tradition of the elders, they should not have had this man at this table. He's unclean. He's sick. But, but, but they didn't mind breaking that rule for this occasion because, you know, the ends justify the means, apparently, right? So they invited an unclean person to sit with them in their house at the dinner table. Then they sat him directly across from Jesus and they watched and they waited. So my question is, my question is, come on, think about this. Did they really think for a second Jesus didn't know what was going on? He has proven repeatedly throughout the Gospel of Luke to this point in time that he knows our very thoughts. He knows their thoughts. He knows our hearts. Let me just bring that down to reality today. He's here. He's here. He sees and knows any one of us here today who was, is, or might be in the future a Pharisee religiously. He sees us. He knows us. He knows me. He knows you. He, he also sees people who are physically unwell. But he also knows people who are spiritually unwell, but are here. It's a trap. It's a setup. It's so sad. Number two, the tests. It gets better. As Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, <clears throat> as he responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He asks the question. But they remained silent. Then he took him, the man, and he healed him, and he sent him away. So there are, there are at least three, primarily three tests in this, this whole passage we've looked at here today. The first, of course, is the setup test um, that they had for Jesus. So I want to look at the last verse here uh, first to see that, see the conclusion of that. Um, and, and it's important that we see this, that, that Je <laughs> Jesus is, he, you know, oh, he's amazing. So he, he knows what's going on. He knows they're waiting for him to heal the man. And so he's like, okay. But what he does is really, really critical. It, the word took the man. The word again in the Greek, and I'm not trying to get impressive or, or geeky with you, but that, that word literally means he grasped him strongly. Now listen, you and I know this. He could have from one side of the table simply said, be healed, and he would have been healed, right? He did this intentionally, touching an unclean man who was invited, which was against the rules and regulations and traditions, was anathema. 
That just made it worse, Jesus. But Jesus does it. He strongly grasps him, heals the man, and sends him away. Yes, and he could have just said the word. So he not only did work on the Sabbath, but he literally touched this unclean person. So how do you think, how do, should we think they graded Jesus on this test? F? Probably. Fail. Total fail. Got him. Got him. Oh, so they think. <laughs> the second test is actually classic Jesus. And so notice it says that Jesus responded. Let me ask you. Did you hear a question? Did, did you hear them ask a question? Because I didn't. This is proof right there. He knows their thoughts. He responds to them. Proof positive that he knew that this was a setup. And they knew that he knew that they didn't, he didn't, they didn't believe that he respected the Sabbath. So he responds with a test of his own. He says, he asks this question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Yes or no question the way he puts it. Their answer is what? Silence. Fail. That too is a huge fail. So, so why do we, we need to ask the question, why do you think, why should we believe or understand, pardon me, they, they remain silent? Why did they do that? Why didn't they just speak up, like answer the question? Well, this is important really. And there's really one reason was certainly was this. In his test question, Jesus, if you see it there on the screen, he referred to the law. He actually referred them to the law. And these are the guys who were the law keepers. And they knew the law. And here's the thing. There is not one verse, not one, not even a hint, not a single verse in the Old Testament that says you cannot heal a person on the Sabbath. Fail. Gotcha. He didn't say that, though, did he? It's not in the law of Moses. It's nowhere. Secondly, be sure you see this. Secondly, in their very presence, this sick and unclean man who was swollen, all of a sudden, his body is healed miraculously right in front of them. He's sent home probably praising Jesus, praising God in their presence, miracle worker, done. Nothing. Like, no acknowledgement that this is... This. Here's the thing we need to understand. They were all about not being able to heal on the Sabbath. The truth is, we need to understand this. They couldn't heal anybody anytime. But, but there's a man in their presence who can heal, and he just proved it. Who can do that? Well, their Bibles would have told them that only God can do that. So thirdly, then, they're silent because... If they said, look, if they said no, then their very hearts would be exposed for the hard-hearted men that they were, you know, about not wanting to heal a poor man like this. But secondly, if they said yes, they would contradict their own traditions, and to the people they would look foolish. So finally, I believe on this test we should see this. Jesus is not saying that what the Bible teaches, what the law of Moses teaches about the Sabbath is not important. What he's saying is, if you, you, you've, you guys have ruined it. You've added a bunch of rules and regulations. You are the ones who have weakened the authority and, frankly, the beauty of the Sabbath itself. There's one more test he adds for them. He's not finished. 
He could have ended it there, couldn't he? No. He has one more test, and it says this. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So Jesus does this a lot in his teachings, right? First of all, he talks about the law and the prophets and the Sabbath. These are... Then he personalizes it. Who do people say that I am? Boys. Who do you say that I am? He personalizes it. This is, I believe, would have really, really spoken to them and, and maybe made them a little fearful. In the first test, as I said, it's about the law and the healing. So then basically he's saying, which of you? You see that in the text, personalizing? And again, the test leaves them speechless. They could not reply. But again, why? Why? Were they eating with their mouths full? <laughs> you know, did the Holy Spirit stop them from speaking? Well, two reasons are reasonable, I think, for us to consider. First, there was a provision in the law that they knew about, whereby you could, if one of your animals was in a well or in harm's way, you could save them. You could do that. And they knew that because they'd been doing it. <laughs> now, here's the other part of that, though, that's true. There was nothing in the Old Testament that said that you could do the same for your son, for a human being. But the question needs to be, did there need to be? Really? Seriously? Well, in their minds, it did. And his reason for doing that is this. Right there in front of all of them, listen, in front of all of them is a son of Israel. This sick man is why he puts in the word son. He's right there, right in front of them. There's a son in the faith who's in real danger health-wise, and he's here on the Sabbath day, and a man who is known to be able to heal, and they can't, is there. Would you not just simply say to Jesus, Jesus, before we pass the bread and have another glass of wine, would you heal our brother? We know you can do that. Sad. Sad how hard their hearts have become. And Jesus is highlighting that here. He's asking them, if your own son or daughter were in danger on the Sabbath, would you not move mountains to save them? Of course you would. Of course you would. Three tests. Number three, the rest. So as we move to our conclusion, let me ask this question. What should we take from this story today? What do you think we should take here today, 2,000 years out in our modern day? Well, m maybe many good lessons, <laughs> I hope, from this story so far on, not, on how not to behave on the Sabbath or, or what not to turn the Sabbath into, but also maybe some really good lessons and examples of Jesus at this meal, some positive things that we should learn about the Sabbath, what God actually intended for the Sabbath, right? If you look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, he's also always associated with three things when it came to the Sabbath. First, he observed it faithfully. He went to synagogue all the time, faithfully. Secondly, Yes, he often did things that riled the Pharisees on the Sabbath, especially with his disciples, but that was simply because he wanted, 
He, he was wanting to show them and us that the Sabbath really was a day where we could be doing the third thing, which is showing mercy to those who are on need on the Sabbath, on this day. So if we think back to the fourth commandment that we had on screen earlier and that we read earlier, you'll remember that it was first about all about rest from work, right? We also have seen that the Pharisees, the Jewish people as a whole, had not fully understood the heart of this commandment. They, of course, thought it meant that if they were to do work on the Sabbath, then, as I said, God would punish them for that. And so, you know, you don't want that. You don't want to be punished by God, so you want to make sure you do nothing <laughs> and, and then make up all these rules and regulations to avoid being punished by God. As, as a result of their view of the command, they turned, of course, their religion into what? A actual works-based religion. I, I need to do what is right and do what is good and to be seen doing that all the time so that I will be accepted and approved and hopefully blessed by God blessed by God. And so that's why they became these law keepers. This, of course, was over time. You can see it. You can see it in the lives of Pharisees, lives of Pharisees even today. It is an exercise that is completely, completely missing the point. And what is that point? It's the gospel. It's missing the heart of the commandments in general. They, like a lot of even Christians today, missed the fact and commands of God were actually for our good and for our flourishing, not to punish us. The big idea that they missed, and we can miss as well as this, Sabbath rest, first of all, is a picture of resting from our work of trying to save ourselves. That, that's what the sacrifices were for. They couldn't save themselves. They couldn't atone for their own sins. A sacrifice had to take place. And so Sabbath rest is based on you and I resting in the work that Christ alone has done for us. Secondly, then it's true, and please hear this, if it about, is about fully resting from our work, it is that, so it, it, it is this. So listen, it's, it, it's also not this, and, and, and I, got, I got to press into some things today for practical application. It's not vacation to an all-inclusive, which I'm going to for my 65th birthday next March, but hopefully Lord willing. But it's not that. It's not that. Unless, unless we are careful that we actually practice Sabbath rest and we don't turn it into simply, listen, recreation, right? It's interesting that word. The word is actually recreate, and we've turned it into recreate. Right? So, so what do a lot of people do on Sunday in our community? What do, what do a lot of Christians do as soon as you get out of here, as soon as I stop talking and we pray and sing a worship song, right? Well, we go out and we, we get our, our adrenaline rush. Well, it's raining. So, and, and whatever, we, you know, we, we go and we do that. And we recreate on the Sabbath day. And then, of course, we go to work on Monday morning needing three cups of coffee because we are more exhausted than we were at the 6 p.m. on Friday, right? Carpe diem, seize the day, suck the marrow out of life. TGIF, whew. Yep, that's what we can turn it into. Many years ago, I was, uh, we were in a church in Chilliwack. Now, some of you aren't going to believe this. This is a ridiculous, you're not going to believe this, but did you know that in the last 25 to 30 years, uh, there, were, uh, there were actually bylaws in municipalities and in cities across Canada where stores needed to be closed on Sundays? 
Did you know that? Like, that was a thing, okay? So I was asked, I'm part of, our, uh, part of our church because I was a marketing business guy, that I go and be part of this panel because they were like, well, you need to, like the city put this together, this panel to, you know, forum about Sunday shopping. Should we allow it, right? And, and so on and so forth. So I was sent there because they figured, you know, I would argue against it. You know, I was a good Christian and all the rest of it. And, and I did, but in a different way. But it was interesting when I went to this forum, it was like there were people like arguing that, well, you know, come on, you know, we work Monday to Friday and the only time we can go shopping is Saturday and Sunday and and blah, 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 blah. And interestingly, there was a guy there from the Cultus Water Slides, one of the owners of the Cultus Water Slides, and he was like, no, please, don't allow Sunday shopping. We, we rely on the fact that people have the day off to come and recreate, right? Water slides, not exactly an adrenaline, what well, could be an adrenaline rush? And, and, and so, but here's the thing. I just remember at the time, I remember I, I gave my input to it as a businessman and all the rest of it, and not so much, you know, well, because the word of God says, you know, like again, trying to, um, but I did, I did at the time say to people, be careful, be careful, because listen, you're not gonna be able to undo this, right? And what, what has happened since? Human flourishing or mental, physical, and emotional stress? Because people are working all the time, all the time, all the time, including not able to gather on Sunday because they have to work. Now, you can, you can make adjustments for that in your life, of course. How about this? Have you ever been sitting outside in your backyard on a beautiful sunny day in uh, the summer and it's uh, like, like 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 4.30 and you invite friends over and have a barbecue and a few drinks on the back deck, right? And then just as you're having, you know, you pour some drinks and you're all sitting down to have a relaxing time, one of your neighbors decides to turn on the, the lawnmower, you know, or a chainsaw. You know, I got I to gotta do a little bit of, because, you know, I hadn't, didn't get, maybe it's just me, maybe. I need to confess this and, and, and repent of this, but we lose certain things, don't we? We lose certain things. I have a book here with uh, me today. I really, I, I, I recommend books, and I, I know all of you go out right away and buy them. It's not true, I know. This is the best book I've ever read, and I'm going to reread it again this week because I pulled a quote from it because I was mindful of it when I was preparing this for you this week. Um, it's written by Mark Buchanan. He's actually from British Columbia. It's called The Rest of God, Restoring Your Soul by Restoring Sabbath. I'm going to put what he said, a quote from him, on screen for you as we close. He said this, In a culture where busyness is a fetish and stillness is laziness, rest is sloth. But without rest, we miss the rest of God. The rest he invites us to enter more fully so that we might know him more deeply. Be still and know that I am God. Have you had rest like that lately? You need it. I need it. So Sabbath rest is literally, listen, ceasing from your work. All of it. Ceasing from your work. Your work of the previous six days, which includes work around the house. Spending your time instead worshiping God, being with family, enjoying a, ma a meal, even maybe with someone you just got to know or a neighbor or someone who's a sojourner who really could use 
to be around you and your family because you're going to be encouraging them, sharing around the table thoughts about the morning gathering and the word that you heard and about Jesus and about God and about how good he is to you and for you with them. And maybe even having a nap. You all know that I take a pastor's nap on Sundays, right? Even though this is not my Sabbath. Tomorrow is. Tomorrow is. So don't text me. Don't call me. As we will see over the next two Sundays, this meal with Jesus continues. For two more Sundays, we're going to see this meal. This this is a long luncheon. But I, I want to encourage you with this as we close. Jesus teaches this strong part at the beginning. And yet he stays at this meal with these men who tried to trap him and set him up. And what he's going to teach them over the next two Sundays that we'll see and he finishes with at this luncheon is evidence that he loved them. And he wanted them to be in his kingdom and to receive him as Lord and Savior. Go and enjoy your Sabbath today. Pray with me, would you?